In May of 1972, five burglars are arrested for breaking into a hotel in Washington, D.C. This very simple crime, over time, becomes a national scandal that would be named after the hotel that they broke into, Watergate. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is, the podcast where we talk about the past, the present, the personal, and the political. This is episode two of Profiles in Impeachment, Nixon, Watergate, and Our Long National Nightmare. To help me tell this story, we have a returning guest, my father, Mike Logan. Here's our conversation, and then I'll be back at the end with my final thoughts. Looking at first, and we're going to start from the beginning, is the break-in at the Watergate Hotel. What starts out as this, what looks like a bungled burglary by people who don't know what they're doing, ends up being quite a big deal for Nixon. Now, the weirdest thing about this is, is that this scandal that ruins President Nixon, was it his idea? Well, you know, everything we have is secondhand, thirdhand information and books that we read. But, you know, everything that I have read about it, there's been a lot of sources that collaborate this, that Nixon didn't know anything about it until after the fact. Uh, it wasn't his idea, you know, to put these plumbers together and, and go break in uh, to the DNC headquarters there. Uh, uh, it, it was others who, you know, planned and propagated that and, and uh, implemented it. But he obviously got very much involved with the cover-up. Right, which is w what ultimately did him in. Um, my favorite theory of the break-in is actually that, uh, and this comes from my, uh, my college days, uh, when I did a research paper on Nixon and Watergate, was one of the books I read actually proposed the theory that the break-in was motivated by John Dean wanting to investigate it because I believe his wife was involved in some things. Well, it was his girlfriend it was his at girlfriend. the time. Okay. Now, one of the sources of books that I read was by G. Gordon Liddy, and he he puts this out. He was in the car monitoring this break-in. Uh, you know, he was kind of like the foreman for the thing. He wasn't in the hotel when they got busted, but he was, but he was, he was outside, sure. you know, listening. But he, in his book, and he, he had mentioned the fact that uh, John Dean's girlfriend, and I forget her name, but she's a, just a beautiful woman, beautiful woman, who also, he says, was a call girl. And she was... Uh, pretty famously associated with this uh, very, uh, you know, high-class call girl uh, group in Washington, D.C. Hmm. Well, John Dean, and that was his girlfriend. And he wanted to know, uh, you know, if she was sleeping with people at the DNC, and, and, and uh, he was very jealous. And, and he felt this would be a great opportunity to get in there and find out what, what, what's in the files about his girlfriend. Right, what might be yeah. going on. Yeah, what might be going on, because she had dated several high-ranking, uh, you know, Democrats. But that's what G. Gordon Liddy puts forth, and he, hey, he was one of the plumbers. And that, uh, though, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense, also makes a lot more sense than the traditional story that's thrown out there, that they were bugging the DNC in order to help Nixon's re-election chances. Yeah, that doesn't make any Which sense. Which doesn't make any sense no. because the polling all indicated what eventually happened, that Nixon was heavily favored against McGovern. There was yeah. no way he was going to lose. So there's no reason for why Nixon would, would authorize a burglary. Not at all. I mean, McGovern was so weak uh, candidate, he would fit right in with today's Democrats. He'd have been right up there as, hey... You're not going to make it, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. But uh, uh, so it wouldn't make any sense to risk getting caught to find out information that you don't need. And so, yeah, it doesn't make sense to say Nixon wanted to, to do this. Uh -uh. Right. Now, do you think now, but in, in theory, 
Um, do you think Nixon would be against having his enemies be bugged or uh, burglarized? Not at all. Not at all. He would well, you know, he, he's the one that famously had an enemies list, you know, and uh, get the IRS after right. him, get uh, Hoover after him or whoever. Uh, he had an enemies list, and no, I wouldn't put it past him. No, but, right. but again, he was not a fool. You know, uh, he's, he was a very brilliant man. Now, he would take calculated risks to go after his enemies, but not foolishly, mm -hmm. you know, uh, like this. This is just the... the Return on his investment on this break-in wouldn't be great. Right. <laughs> so what starts out as a, and is reported as a small burglary, um, through the <clears throat> discovery of names and connections with the uh, with the burglars, and I think with evidence that are uh, that are on them, they find names that are actually lead them to people connected to the White House. Now, the investigation is an interesting one that uh, is popular, at least uh, in the newspaper end of the investigation, is popularized in All the President's Men. Now, the one thing I do know about this is that uh, Bob Woodward, Bob Woodward and, and uh, Carl Bernstein look nothing like Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. No, they do not. I, just, I mean, have you, I, I, I just, that's the one thing that kills me is, you have you ever, I mean, I'm sure there's good looking people in journalism, but there's no Robert Redfords out there going, you know what, I want to get into journalism. Yeah. <laughs> that's the one, that's the, the thing that jumps out to me, they're, because especially now you see, um, you know, I think uh, Carl Bernstein is, is actually on the, the news um, as a as a source that they're using um, for these proceedings that are going on now, uh, and um, at no point I don't think he looked uh, nothing like Dustin Hoffman. That's one problem I have with the movie. Now I know you have a problem with the movie as well. That uh, surrounding around this key figure that Woodward and Bernstein use as their source for the investigation when they're reporting all these things. They say they're getting their information from Deep Throat. That's what they said. That's what they say. And as the story is told, eventually, I think um, uh, it, there was many theories. And eventually in the, I want to say late 90s, early 2000s, I believe Mark Felt, uh, who was at then a, um, he was a member of the FBI, a high-ranking member there, uh, came out to say he was... Deep Throat. Yeah, just recently, you know, maybe, right. t what, 10, 12 years ago, right. something like that, yeah. Right. Now, now, from what I've spoken with you, does that theory that the, what, what is the accepted story of Mark Felt being the source for Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein, does that hold up to you? No, I think that's pure fiction, and I tell you why. Um, as you you know, I'm I'm a conspiracy theorist. Yeah, it's fun. I <laughs> I, uh, uh, I read all I can on on uh, you know deep states and things like this. But uh, from what I've been in my research, and the most recent one too was last year. I got a book. Of it. it was uh, it's called Nixon's Secret by Roger Stone and uh, Mike uh, Colapetro, and they, they he brings out something really fascinating about this uh, deep throat character, mm -hmm. and. Uh, what he says in a nutshell is that the information that Woodward and Bernstein claimed they got from one individual uh, um, spanning 52 meetings, clandestine meetings with this one individual at the same garage in the dark at about 2, 3 in the morning. So they, they met at the same place for about 52 meetings to get this information. Now, we're, we're to believe now that this Mark Felt was the deep throat, a very experienced, uh, you know, FBI man. Right. He's way up there, second and third and top of the FBI, 30 years in the FBI. You know, this guy knows clandestine meetings and how to run them, how to not get caught. You mean to tell me an FBI guy is going to have the same spot each time to meet with these reporters? Right. That, that just wouldn't happen. That's foolishness. You're going to get caught. 
you're, you're developing a pattern here that can, you know, that you could be followed and, and uh, investigated and caught. So, no, number one, uh, no, it wouldn't be uh, an FBI guy. But in reading Nixon's Secrets, too, by Roger Stone, they bring out, no, it, it wasn't uh, Mark Felt at all. In fact, it wasn't one individual. Uh, and he, this was happening at the time when these bits of information that were being put in the paper by Woodward and Bernstein came out. A lot of experts would look at that and say, wait a minute, these revelations that we're getting here could not have possibly come from one individual in Washington because where this information would be gotten from, wouldn't, you wouldn't have access to it in these other areas. You know, it had to come from, let's say, one of them was coming from the State Department, you know. The other would be from the CIA. One would be from the Joint Chiefs of Staff meetings, private meetings. Not one person is involved with all these areas mm -hmm. of government. So it had to be coming from multiple sources. So Roger Stone's book, what he says is what happened. There was multiple people out to get Nixon and they, they were feeding Woodward and Bernstein from multiple sources. Uh, but they wanted to protect their sources. Mm -hmm. So they made up this story about uh, Deep, Deep Throat. There's this one guy in Washington that knows all this, and he's feeding us the information. That was to take the heat off uh, the fact that they're getting uh, these, this information from multiple sources, you know, from within the government. And so they made this uh, fictitious character up. Now, later on, here comes Mark Felt. He's, mm -hmm. he's dying of cancer. He's broke. And, uh, you know, he, he met with uh, Woodward, and he was talking with Woodward, and they came out, and they said, okay, uh, uh, supporting of Felt, you have my permission now to come out of the darkness and reveal who you are. So he could get this big million-dollar book deal because he's dying and wants to leave money to his family. And so this only perpetuated the lie that Woodward and Bernstein had that there was a deep throat. Oh, it, it actually helps them, uh, you know, keep this lie going rather than uh, have to expose their sources. Mm -hmm. But the, it came out their sources were coming from within the White House, within Nixon's cabinet, within the uh, military complex, with, you know, all over the place was out to get Nixon and, and there was no deep throat. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense, considering the variety of information that, especially from what, what, how much could one guy know, especially being in the FBI, how could one guy know all that, um, covering so much just being in the FBI? Yeah. yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And especially knowing information, like you said, in all these different places internationally that maybe the CIA would know. And there's no way a guy in the FBI would just get this from the CIA, because as we know... The FBI and the CIA don't really get along all that famously. Especially back then. Right. And that's the other thing. Just uh, to give it a historical context, this is uh, we're still uh, fairly well into the uh, Cold War. If this, if this is an FBI agent meeting at the same place all the time, pretty sure he would end up in a, in a Russian guy's trunk eventually. Absolutely. So yeah, he'd be in the dungeon uh, giving all sorts of information out. Right. You know. <laughs> so we go from that investigation and the uh, how that develops until eventually what we have is that we have an inqu uh, a trial inquiry, and there are many uh, perpetrators that are arrested, and the Justice Department discovers there is a connection between the cash found on the on the burglars at the time and a slush fund used by the Nixon, Nixon re-election campaign committee. Mm -hmm. They followed the money. Yes. So, so there's further investigations and revelations. Um, and so they have folks uh, testify in the inquiry. And one of the big folks that come in, and this is uh, one of the folks that come in as one of the big uh, witnesses or for to testify is John Dean. Now, and he is one of the first big ones to um, to come forward and to implicate Nixon. 
now. What would you? What would be your opinion of John Dean, especially in this, uh, as he's coming forward, given his testimony? What do you think he's really doing here? Well, uh, according to G. Gordon Liddy, mm -hmm. again, yes, uh, he was a cowardly rat. Uh, he was protecting himself. He, the last thing that he would want it to come out was that he was the one that got this uh, you know, break-in going. Mm -hmm. So he made a, a deal with the prosecutors. Uh, and he went to jail, too, I think, for a short period of time. But he could have gone up for like 10, 15 years. Right. No, he did get immunity, but he definitely went down for... Uh with with the deal that he did uh, serve time for. Yeah, I think I things. think it was six months or something it right. was in a cushy federal prison with the country club. But right. but uh, he was a rat. You know, he just uh, he rolled over right away as soon as he uh, could cut a deal. Well, he was an attorney, and he he wasn't a what you would call an, a fan of Nixon either. He was a hired hand, you know, to act as his attorney and. Uh, the last thing he did was look out for Nixon's, uh, you know, well-being. He sold him out, right? Rather than, uh, you know, say, "Look, I'd take the fifth. I don't, you know, I don't want to incriminate myself. I don't, you know, nothing like that." He'd say, "I'll tell you what you want. Just let me go real easy, you know, <laughs> right. and let's not bring this up about my my girlfriend, right? You know, <laughs> you know." So that's what I think about John Dean. He was right. just a rat, right? And what also. I find interesting is, do you think he knew about the taping system? No. Right. I think Nixon and Butterfield and his uh, secretary were the only three. Right. I agree with that because um, with the Nixon tapes, uh, he has this conversation with Nixon uh, about, you know, how they're going to cover it up and things like that. And what eventually triggers Dean to turn on Nixon is when Nixon tells him, hey, Go off to Camp David, and what I want you to do is write a summary of you know of the of, of Watergate and you know you know anything you you know you, from your perspective yeah. of your account of it, and you know write it up, and then we'll uh, we'll submit it and everything. Would, and he clearly realizes, okay, I'm being scapegoated here. Yes, and I'm being taped. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think <laughs> if he knew he was being taped, I don't yeah. think he would have said the things that he said oh, that show yeah. up on the tapes. Yeah that show that he's part of the cover-up. Yeah. But when he gets sent off, I think that is when he's like, oh, wait a minute here. I'm basically writing out a confession. Yes. So he's one of the <clears> first <throat> big people that at least I would highlight as being the people who testified. But the big one comes July 13th when Alexander Butterfield tells the Senate investigators, out of nowhere, Nixon has a taping system. Sure. Which... Um, as far as drama goes, does it get any better than that? Well, he had no. There was no reason for him to reveal this. He he wasn't asked. Uh, did Nixon have a taping system? Right. That that didn't even enter anybody's mind. Right. He just brought this up. Now mm -hmm. he's a ex-general, mm -hmm. Butterfield, uh, and again in my the books I've been reading too, he was also ex-CIA, and he was also uh, uh, you know. Uh, while he was with the CIA, uh, he he had uh, a lot of associates that were anti-Nixon people that didn't like Nixon at all, but they were you know professional associates with him and the CIA. So here he gets placed in a position, a very high position, right next to the president, and uh, uh, he sells them out. You know he knew what he was doing. It wasn't a foo-paw. Faux pas, you know. Oops, mm -hmm. a slip of the tongue. <laughs> oh, did I say that? No, it, it was uh, planned. Right. You know, he was going to say that, and, and they wanted to bury Nixon politically. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, poor Nixon, he had no idea that he was going to get sold out by these people, but uh, he sure did. He got sold out. Right, and the uh, tapes, though, at the it was revealed that the tapes existed, but it wouldn't be for a while until they realized how damaging the tapes would be. So when that happens, um, at, no, before they're released, and released reluctantly, um, Nixon does, on uh, November 17th, through skipping to 1973, Nixon does deliver the uh, famous, people have to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Um, and in these moments, um, Especially, I'm, I'm just curious, uh, with the 
with the like the trial and, and you know the uh, trial inquiry um, I, of it and the uh, the press coverage of everything was this a big thing for like the viewing audience at a time at this time like as in back in 73 or you know early early 70s was this something that you know everyday citizens was aware of and invested in similar to today i don't it was a big thing for the average uh, U.S. citizen at the time, but it was a big thing. Now, in 1973, I was a senior in college, uh, but I also was working part-time for the city of San Pablo. <clears throat> I was working in the uh, recreation department there, and I know every day that I would go into work at City Hall, there was multiple television sets in various departments watching the Watergate hearings, you know, during work hours. Also, when I would go to the uh, university, and I could remember going into the psychology department's office, uh, I had some business or something to do there, and they would have a television set up watching the Watergate hearings. The news had nothing but Watergate hearings, so it was a big thing. You know, uh, the average guy worked at the gas station or something, and just you know, trying to make a living. I don't know if it was a big thing to him, but uh, uh, boy, it was is in the media. It was big. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, and it's the and that's what I I envy all these these big moments that we take for granted as just well known sound bites that folks actually lived as reality. These moments of what did what did the president know, and when did he know it? Is almost a question that is almost considered that that people just bring up as a as a phrase in one way or another when you know discussing political matters that was happening for the first time. Nixon saying, "I'm not a crook." It's happening for the first time. Something that just is part of the American lexicon vernacular, or vernacular now. now. Yes. Um. I just kind of envy the folks that were around these moments for this first time and what they kind of felt and reacted to at the time. Now, how, I mean, as as much as you at all seeing, how did you feel about the whole Watergate thing at the time? Were you, you know, as much as you understood about it and paid attention to it, what did you think at the time that, as, as much as you knew? Well, you know, I'll be honest with you. Um... Again, I was a you know senior in college, young man. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really politically savvy. Mm -hmm. I didn't go out of my way to uh, delve into political issues and government. I, I had my hands full uh, just trying to graduate from college, plus working twenty hours a week, plus mm -hmm. you know uh, social life. Uh, so uh, I right. didn't really pay a, a lot of attention, but I do remember things that stood out in my mind. And again, when I told you about the television sets, yeah. I remember when John Dean was, was testifying. I think he was there for like four days. But when I would go into City Hall, there would be like seven or eight people around the TV. I mean, this is the city manager and the CEO of finance. I mean, they're supposed to be doing their job and working. Oh, no, they're, they're glued to this television set. When John Dean was talking, so I mean, I, that stood out in my mind. So I had to stick my head in there, too. And go, what's, what's, going on? what's going on? He said, oh, John Dean is testifying. You've got to hear this. I remember that very, you know, distinctly. And so I'd listen for a while. Yeah. But, you know, I, I was so distracted with life that I didn't, uh, I didn't pay a, a whole lot of attention to it until after, you know, he resigned. Mm -hmm. Then I said, oh, wait a minute, we have president resigned what you know then i started getting into <laughs> yeah. you know typical uh, yeah. college student you know. yeah which uh which actually kind of makes sense um which is probably a healthier way to go a lot of people are so obsessed with the stuff that happens in washington and they don't live anywhere near it mm -hmm. and yet that's what they're that's like their uh that's their you know their number one reality show is what's going on in washington mm -hmm. but it might actually be healthier to just focus on what they're doing from day to day yeah, I mean, you know, especially just your John J. schmuck like me, I don't have access to 
inside information of what's going on in uh, in government. I, I don't have information of what's going on in county government, let alone Washington, D.C. We only know what's fed to us. Right. And so you got to take it with a grain of salt and look at it and go, ah, is that true or not? You know, I don't know. Just make up your opinion based on the pablum that they uh, feed us. Right. You know? I right. can't see getting obsessed to the point of, you know, your, your whole life revolves around Washington, D.C. when, you know, you're a sociology major at, uh, you know, LMC or something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And as we move along the timeline, jumping to July of 1974, the issue of the tapes um, are way pretty heavy because uh, Congress has said, hey, we want the tapes. And Nixon is saying, uh, nope, not giving them. Executive privilege. Yep, not, you're, you're not getting them. Um, and the Supreme Court finally tells Nixon that he has to release the tapes. Uh, what I find interesting is that bef before, uh, before Nixon uh, releases them, it was the advice of speechwriter Pat Buchanan, burn the tapes yes. and fire the special prosecutor for unreasonable requests. Yeah, Archibald Cox. Yes. Uh, Buchanan gave him some really good advice in hindsight. You're going down. The only way you're going to delay this, <laughs> burn those tapes, fire that prosecutor, you know. But in doing so, it would have created a firestorm. Oh, it would know, have been like a legal mess. But what would have been the difference in the outcome? You know, he'd still be thrown out of office. But... Uh, you know what? That always that Supreme Court ruling on that too always kind of shocked me. You know, I think a president has to have a certain amount of you know authority to have privacy with his conversations in the Oval Office that he doesn't have to reveal to anybody. You know, otherwise, who's going to be talking to him? You know, secretly about their you know whatever plans or whatever they need to do legitimately. If it's going to be revealed someday, say, oh, well, gee, this is going to be taped and uh, you can't hide them. Uh, you know, I'm not going to talk to you, any, you know, anymore or something. So there's got to be some sort of executive privilege there. But the court said, no, turn them over, mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah, uh, well, uh, his secretary did delete 17 minutes. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it was, what, like 18 and a half minutes. Yeah, I don't know why it wasn't uh, three and a half hours. What I, <laughs> what I love is her excuse for it. She said that, oh, she accidentally did it, reaching over to answer the phone. <laughs> and totally they, believable. They even drew out a, uh, a, a picture, like, diagram for it, demonstrating how she, how she did it. Yes. What a klutz. And she, she <laughs> talk about going down with the ship. I can't remember the name of his, his, uh, his assistant who, who did that, because she stuck with him to the very end. Woods. I think her last name was okay. Woods. Oh, I mean, that's... Talk about, if you want to talk about uh, political lies that are just ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I reached over and, oh, accidentally. And how, but the thing is, there was a number of uh, erasures from the tapes. So how many times was she reaching over for that phone? <laughs> you think she'd have moved that phone a little closer to her, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Wasn't the brightest woman in the, in, in the, Washington. Yeah, I feel like the, uh, sorry, the evidence was uh, damaged because her desk was designed improperly. Yeah. You oh. know, I want to go back just a little bit because this has been on my mind. Okay. And I'm sorry to disrupt the flow here. That's all but right. But during the break-in, mm -hmm. something that's always puzzled me. You know the, the, the plumbers? Right. Uh, I think there was two, two uh, Cubans. Mm -hmm. They were in on the Bay of Pigs. There was uh, E. Hunt, e. e. Howard Hunt, Hunt yep. who was a known assassin. I mean, he right. killed people. Uh, you've got G. Gordon Liddy out in the car who, you know, he's a very tough dude as well. Okay, they go in there to this uh, break-in. They're not carrying any weapons with them. But, you know, these are bad dudes. They probably don't need any weapons. Right. And a security guard comes upon them. You mean these four guys who are, you know, really... Tough dudes mm -hmm. couldn't have overwhelmed him. At least tied him up. At least knocked him out. Put him in a closet. Right. They, they give up, and they're arrested. And that always uh, puzzled me. I said, right. "Wait a minute, you know, it's, it's like Mike Tyson getting arrested by a store security guard." You know, said, <laughs> so, "Wait a minute, how'd you do that?" Well, they just threw their hands up. You know, uh, so that always puzzled me. I said, "Gee, you guys are the tough of the tough, and 
a security guard took you down. Right. But anyway, let's go on with the show. Well, we can. We there's other thing I want to bring out is is that they got arrested breaking back into the Watergate Hotel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was something that I only, I, I just was reminded of when I was researching back again. They weren't, uh, they got the uh, the mics and the bugs in there, but then once they got the, the bugs in there, they weren't any good. No. Like they weren't getting, so they had to break in there to, uh, to fix them or whatever. Right, so when they break back in there, that's when they get caught. Yeah, and they had that tape on the lock on the door. Yep. And the security guard goes, hmm, what is this? You right. know, I'm going, ah. Right. Which is which is surprising because it's bonehead moves by guys who know better. Yeah. These are the professionals. Right. You know, they took. I think maybe they took this job too lightly. Said, oh, mm-hmm. this is a piece of cake. Right. I think because they'd already broken in before, they were like, okay, we've got this. Yeah. They, well, they broke into Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg's office, mm-hmm. uh, who was, you know, releasing the Pentagon Papers. Right. And so, oh, this is a piece of cake. This is a hotel. Right. Ah, no, let's just go in there and get it done, get out. Boom. Look what happened. <laughs> right. History has changed. Right. That old famous phrase, what could go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? So once the, uh, moving on to Nixon releases the tapes. And this is one of those things that, uh, this is what's known as the big snow, smoking gun. This is what really does Nixon in. Now, it, it, uh, it doesn't uh, reflect very well on Nixon. Uh, it uh, also it released some uh, embarrassing things. One of those things is that he called uh, Indira Gandhi, uh, who was the first female prime minister of India, a witch. It's like we had to suck up to that witch. Yeah, a lot of terrible, a lot of <laughs> terrible things that show up in the Nixon tapes that show him to be a not so great guy. A lot of profanity. Oh, he was famous of... for, uh, uh, you know, using uh, foul language mm-hmm. in private. Right. LBJ would do it in public, but <laughs> he did it in private. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so. The tapes not only showed uh, a not-so-great side of him, but also spelled out how he covered up the the investigation and tried and did everything he could to stop from being investigated. On top of that, the famous was it Saturday Night Massacre, mm-hmm. where he goes and basically wants to he he's telling basically to get Archibald Cox fired, and. Eventually, I believe it is um, Robert Bork who does fire Archibald Cox. Yeah. But that's after two other guys resign. Yes. So you get two resignations and a firing all in one night, all yeah. because Nixon wants to just stop him, stop from being investigated. Yeah, he didn't realize that it's not going away. Right. That's... He has too many enemies uh, in Washington and in, with the uh, media, with the press. They, they were not going to let go of this. Right, though. It's it's uh, and it's one of those misunderstandings that I learned from uh, uh, Tom Brokaw's book uh, that they misunderstood how this was going to be perceived. His firing of Archibald Cox, they thought that okay, if Nixon fires him, this will be perceived as like a positive for Nixon. When all it did was backfire. Mm-hmm. All it did was show him overreaching and. Mm-hmm. and all it does is, if you had the ability to fire the people who are investigating look, you for a parking ticket, that doesn't look good on you if you fire them. No. It doesn't. He should have got Joe Biden involved to get that prosecutor fired. <laughs> <laughs> now, problem solved. Thanks, Joe. Right. Well, well, yeah. Well, he didn't, yeah. Uh, yeah, that is true. He, you should have done that, Laura. <laughs> Not that uh, I, I, I have to imagine uh, President Trump probably had a few of those same type of conversations with the James Comey before he fired him. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I was like, can you, can you stop investigating me? Well, I really can't do that. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to fire you. Well, one thing Trump tried to get him to do was to come out and say, I'm not under investigation. Right. Because he said, no, we're not investigating, which was a lie. They were investigating. Right. Uh, and, but they would tell uh, Trump, no, we're not investigating. Well, would you please tell the media that you're not investigating me? Because they think you are, and it's really, it looks bad. Yeah. And he wouldn't. Right. Because <laughs> he was. Because he was. Right. <laughs> uh, 
The Nixon tapes represented the single best source of evidence into the White House's involvement in the break-in and mostly the cover-up. They contained what became known as the smoking gun recording, having Nixon discuss using the CIA to hamper the FBI's investigative efforts. Within days of the public learning of the smoking gun tape, President Nixon resigned from the presidency. In these days, in between the tapes and Nixon resigning, on August 7, 1974, U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater, U.S. House Minority Leader John Rhodes of Arizona, and U.S. Senate Minority Leader Hugh Scott made it clear to the embattled Nixon that he faced an all but certain impeachment, conviction, and removal from office in connection with the Watergate scandal. Goldwater, Rhodes, and Scott did not try to persuade or urge Nixon to resign in their meeting in his working office in the old executive office building. They just confirmed to the doomed president the extent to which his support on the Hill had evaporated. In an article from the Arizona Republic, Tom Rhodes, the son of John Rhodes, said, My dad kind of bristled at the idea that he had he and Goldwater talked Nixon into doing what he did. I don't think any one of the three of them took any pride in that moment. And we know historically Nixon resigns. What I find interesting is that he resigns after people from his own party actually come and say to him, look, the writing's on the wall. You've got to go. There's no way, I mean, the, this case against you was terrible. Not only Watergate, but there was other scandals as well involving uh, his own papers, his own uh, uh, vice presidential papers that he had. He actually uh, sold in order to get a tax write-off on them. Mm -hmm. And he was, I mean, he was neck deep in corruption and scandal. Sure. And he had to go. But it was. Uh, but he. What I find interesting is that he had people of his own party come in and tell him that, "Hey, you gotta go." What I'm probably just gonna jump in and say, "Could you ever see that happening today?" Yes. If the evidence was as overwhelming as it was for Nixon, yeah. And here's why: politics. Uh, the number one rule in politics, if you're a senator or a congressperson, protect thyself. Mm -hmm. You come first. Right. Your re-election is more important than the country, than anybody else that's in Washington. You got to protect yourself. Now, Nixon became politically toxic. Nobody wanted to uh, help him out or become associated with him, with him because it was just overwhelming. This guy was a crook. You know, uh, as most of them are, but this has been revealed. You can't hide it. Mm -hmm. And so, like Nixon said, the, the, when that David Frost uh, interview, uh, you know, why did you uh, give up and decide not to fight? He, and Nixon said, I lost my political base. I had no support within my party. They all deserted me. And they all told me, you're on your own, more or less. And so that's why I said, I, I can't win this fight on my own. Uh, I better resign and you know cut the best deal I can. Right. But I can see it happening today if there was enough overwhelming. It, it, look at it, it's 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 clear. It's white mm -hmm. and black here uh, that you did this and this and this and this is horrible stuff that you did. I mean, it's got it can't be something like a phone call. It's got to be really concrete. You broke the law. Here's the statute you broke. It's um, statute number C twenty two dash what you know. Right, and we have a Ooh. video of you doing. We got you doing it, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can see people, you know, doing that. You right. know, because you, the number one rule, you know, protect thyself and thy own political career first, and mm -hmm. then if well, if it's okay to help you out, I will. But if it's going to hurt me, no. So they would do like. Uh, like John Dean, rats on a ship. Mm. Yeah, I can see it happening if it was going to hurt them politically. Mm. Makes sense. And so after Nixon resigns, um, what I found interesting, what I, what stuck with me, was watching his farewell address to his staff. What I see is a Nixon I'd never seen before mm. in this entire scandal. A guy 
surrounded, you know, his family's crying. And he tells them to not give up, to mm -hmm. always do your best, never get discouraged. Great speech. Terrific speech. Yeah, I know. I was like, who is this guy? Who's yeah. the? Who, this is the same guy who looked terrible against Kennedy. This is the same guy who sweaty, sweaty foreheadedly said, I'm not a crook, who's, who's horribly racist on the tapes. Yet in this time when he is going out the door and he is politically done for, has his most eloquent and inspiring moment. Mm -hmm. That I find fascinating. Yeah, you, and I think you could thank uh, Buchanan for that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I, yeah, I, I, though the only, thing that, <laughs> the only thing that stops me from thinking it was Pat Buchanan, he would have put in his speech... If I only had burned the tapes, if I, only would like, I might not have been here. If I would have listened to Pat, you know. <laughs> right. But, you know, I, when I saw that, too, I felt sorry for him. Uh, you know, I remember that. And then when he got on the helicopter and waved, you know, I, always, I felt so sorry for the guy. Right. You know, um, uh, I remember kind of feeling that I think, uh, you know, he, he got a bad deal. Because I really wasn't informed that much, you know, like I said. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was a great speech to the staff. What a classy way to go out. Right. Which is unexpected, especially um, unexpected to somebody who has done his fair share of, of, of bad things. Yeah. Uh, said a fair share of bad things. Yet is uh, fascinatingly and just uh, optimistic in a situation where no one would be at all optimistic, mm -hmm. which I could possibly be also because maybe he talked to Gerald Ford about getting pardoned. Oh, he knew that before he, that was part of his deal, yeah. you know, who he's going to name. But right. compare that speech with his staff to the speech that he gave when he ran for governor of California and lost, and he decided he wasn't going to hold public office anymore. <laughs> the speech he gave there was, you you rats, you're not going to have me to kick around anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. <laughs> you bums. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, it was a speechwriter, but it still was heartfelt, you know. And uh, even if it was an insincere ploy to get people to feel better about him. No, regardless of that, it was a good speech. Yeah. And I'd give them, give them credit for it. You know? Yeah. No, I, I definitely would. I think there, I, I think you can't, I don't think you can say those, that, that speech and not mean it. Yeah. That, I agree. Yeah. Um, then we move on to the compare and contrast section. I did this similar in Lee in my, uh, Andrew Johnson episode, and well, this is how we're, we're finishing up. I just have a couple of compare contrasts for you. Considering today and then Nixon's time, do you think our government was just as politically divided, our government, like our representatives, do you think they were just as politically divided then in Nixon's time as they are today? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's every man for himself, you know, when they get there. And uh, you, know, you just see the way they vote. They vote on party lines for the most part. With a, you know, there's a few rebels here and there to vote the opposite, but they usually don't get supported next time around. You know, you got to go with the flow. I mean, look at the Democrats today. They all 100% vote for impeachment. There's not one that goes, you know, I don't think so. No, you, you've, they got a vote line, and it was the same back then. You know, um, you know, it was, it was, you know, uh, two gangs, you know, filled with gang members from Congress mm -hmm. and Senate. They stick to their own gang. Right. Re yeah. Regardless of what's going on. That's why I said in the previous podcast was regardless of what case the, the Democrats were going to bring forward, whether it was a strong one or not, we all knew the vote for impeachment and how it was going to go. Yeah. You know, regardless of the case. Um, and then again, comparing today and Nixon's time, do you think our country is just as politically divided today as it was then? As in, you know, uh, every, you know, not just the DC folks, but you know, your 
people who are walking out around today? You know, it's you know, it, it's hard to say. But on on one hand, you know, back during the the uh, mid '60s, '64, '65, '66, to the '70s, in our country, because of Vietnam, there was a tremendous uh, divide, and it was establishment versus anti-establishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people think it was the hippies and all that, but they were very vocal. But that wasn't it. We had a lot of people who uh, became very dissatisfied and disenfranchised with government because of the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a healthy thing because I know as a kid, I just, you know, blind, blindly assumed that America's the good guy. We're always going to be the good guy. Uh, the FBI, they're out there looking for us. The CIA, oh, those are our spies. You know, they're going to look for us. Our president and Congress, they're, you know, they're all good people. They just want to protect us. But lo and behold, that is not the case at all. But at the time, uh, I think that na- naivete was very prevalent throughout the United States. I mean, everybody thought this, mainly because of the culture when we grew up. You know, we had John Wayne and, and mm-hmm. you know... Uh, rah-rah movies and World War II were yeah. the good guys. And so we just assume, you know, the, the, we're, the, we're the good guys. Well, mm-hmm. as we, time goes on and more information comes out about the corruption of Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and it's not just recently. I think it's been there since George Washington time. And, uh, you know, no, it's a corrupt uh, institution uh, run by powerful people that we have no idea what their plans are. It's like Vanderbilt said back when, uh, I think it was Woodrow Wilson was coming up for for election. Mm -hmm. And the reporters asked uh, Vanderbilt, who's the richest man in the world at the time, uh, who do you think is going to win the presidential election? And Vanderbilt said very smugly, it doesn't matter who wins. The money will always control Washington and the country. Meaning... Him and his rich friends, because they had formed the you know the uh, Federal Reserve Bank. Today, Federal Reserve Bank controls more of America than we know. Uh, they are not a federal bank, by the way. They are owned by private you know citizens. Mm-hmm. And we you know uh, if we were to look in the Federal Reserve, you're going to find corruption, you know, to the hilt as well. And uh, so you know, I just think that uh, you know the divide is there. It'll always be there. And, uh, you know, the naivete back in the 60s was probably greater than it is today. I think more people today realize, you know, these, you can't trust these people on face value. Yeah, and I think that's, uh, I, think we're, we're, I think we're better off for it. On August 9th, 1974, Gerald Ford was sworn in as president. He delivered his inaugural address that, unlike most inaugural addresses, was not of triumph, but still had optimism. And unavoidably addressed the Watergate scandal by which he has become president. He says, my fellow Americans, our long national nightmare is over. Our constitution works. Our great republic is a government of laws and not of men. Here, the people rule. But there is a higher power, by whatever name we honor him, who ordains not only righteousness, but love, not only justice, but mercy. In the beginning, I asked you to pray for me. Before closing, I ask you again your prayers for Richard Nixon and for his family. May our former president, who brought peace to millions, find it for himself. May God bless and comfort his wonderful wife and daughters, whose love and loyalty will forever be a shining legacy to all who bear the lonely burdens of the White House. I can only guess at those burdens although I witnessed at close hand the tragedies that befell three presidents and the lesser trials of others. With all the strength and all the good sense I have gained from life, 
With all the confidence of my family, my friends, and dedicated staff impart to me, and with the goodwill of countless Americans, I have encountered in recent visits to 40 states. I now solemnly reaffirm my promise I made to you last December to uphold the Constitution, to do what is right as God gives to me to see the right, and to do the very best I can for America. God helping me, I will not let you down. Thank you. But for some, he did let them down. Through the presidential proclamation, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon on September 8, 1974. totally political. Now you mentioned Andrew Johnson. Now when Nixon was impeached, I was a senior in college, but when Johnson was impeached, I was just an elementary school. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't remember a whole lot. You know? right. We did talk about it at lunch, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but you yeah. know, it is, it's all political. In fact, right. uh, you know, they have people on record on tape that uh, one day after uh, he was inaugurated, uh, there was a, a congressman that said, we're going to have to impeach this guy. And that was started the first day. Mm -hmm. And then there, who was that, uh, that one congressman that just a couple of years ago, he said, look, we're not going to beat him in the polls. We've got to impeach this guy. We're not going to take back the White House unless mm -hmm. we impeach him. And that was two years ago. So, right. I mean, this is a, a, a plan that they've had from way back because oh, for politics, we got to right. get rid of him. And if it wasn't Trump, if it was another... Republican that they couldn't, uh, you know, make deals with and corrupt. They do the same thing for John Brown or whoever it is. The, he's not playing with them. He's not making the deals they want to make like Bush would make. Right. You know. The, uh, yeah, the politics I find inescapable um, because I think I think the dynamic is there again. Like you said, no matter who was there. I remember was it uh, Dennis Kucinich was a Democrat. Who four foot six? Every day, <laughs> every day of the of George W. Bush's presidency was like we have to impeach him. Yes, but W. Not a perfect guy, but again, it just demonstrates the inescapable political nature of this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much uh, for being on the show again. You are a fountain of knowledge, sir. As well as being a great dad. Hey, you're you're a great son, by the way. Well, thank you. Uh, and I appreciate you having me on. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, enjoy yeah. having you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And my final thoughts for this episode: I can't help but wonder if the Watergate scandal was a nightmare. What are we in right now? President Nixon continued to deny any connection to the Watergate scandal when admitting the truth would have helped him to survive in the first place. Had he not tried to cover up, had he just admitted what had happened, he would have survived. In President Trump's case, had he admitted what had happened and not pretended, Maybe he'd be in a better place politically? I don't know. Maybe we wouldn't have this long, drawn-out uh, process that we have if more honesty was applied. Both Nixon and Trump refused to admit anything, even in the face of mounting evidence. Both were reluctant in areas and cooperative in others. That one has a bit of a foothold that one could indeed argue obstruction of Congress. I ponder, could we really ever see Republican or the Democrat Party do what Goldwater, Rhodes, and Scott did? Go to a president of their own party and say that their own party has said that this is a no-win situation, that they would actually put the country ahead of holding power in the executive office. I'm left wondering questions, and I'm sorry I don't have all the answers. At what point does executive privilege stop and executive abuse start when it comes to the president's conversations? The government tracks our emails, but we can't track what the president said in order to keep them accountable. 
What's the solution? I don't know. Mike the White House again? Transcripts, like text messages, they only tell you what they said, but they don't give us the tone or the intention. Like any search, you'd have to have probable cause. The Congress could only hear the conversation they're specifically asking for. I don't know. Nixon said in his farewell speech, but most important, we must be strong, here strong in our hearts, strong in our souls, strong in our belief and our willingness to sacrifice, as you have been willing to sacrifice in a way to serve in government. He speaks of a, a quote, a Teddy Roosevelt quote, he refers to him as T.R. As you know, I kind of like to read books, and I'm not educated, but I do read books. And the T.R. quote was a pretty good one. There's another one I found as I was reading last night in the White House. And this young, in this quote about a young man, he was a young lawyer in New York. He'd married a beautiful girl, and they had a lovely daughter. And then suddenly she died, and this is what he wrote. This was in his diary. He said, She was beautiful in face and form, and lovelier still in spirit. As a flower she grew, and as a fair young flower she died. Her life had been always in the sunshine. There had never come to her a single great sorrow. None ever knew her who did not love and revere her for her bright and sunny temper and her saintly unselfishness. Fair and pure and joyous to the maiden, loving, tender, and happy as a young wife, when she had just become a mother, when her life seemed to be just begun, and then the years seemed to bright before her, so bright before her. Then by a strange and terrible fate, death came to her. And when my heart's dearest died, the light went from my life forever. That was T.R., Teddy Roosevelt, in his 20s. He thought the light had gone from his life forever. But he went on. And not, he not only became president, but as an ex-president, he served his country always in the arena. Tempestuous, strong, sometimes wrong, sometimes right. But he was a man. And I leave you, and, I, and as I leave, let me say that as an example, I think all of us should remember. We sometimes think when things happen that don't go the right way. We think that when you don't pass the bar exam for the first time, I happened to, but I was lucky. I mean, my poor writing was so poor, the bar examiner said he just got to let the guy through. We think that when someone dear to us dies, we think that when we lose an election, we think that when we suffer a defeat, that all is ended. We think, as T.R. said, that the light had, left his, his light had left his life forever. Not true. It's only a beginning, always. The young must know it. The old must know it. It must always sustain us because the greatness comes not when things go always good for you, but the greatness comes and you're really tested and you take some knocks some disappointments, when sadness comes because only you've been in the deepest valley, can you ever really know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. And I say to you this on this occasion we leave, we leave proud people who have, we leave proud of the people who have stood by us and worked for us and served this country. We want you to be proud of what you've done. We want you to continue to serve in this government if that is what you, your wish. Always give your best. Never get discouraged. Never be petty. Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. So we leave with high hopes, in good spirits, with deep humility, one very much and with very much gratefulness in our hearts. And I think that's the only way that we can get through the insanity that is politics.
when things don't go the way we were hoping for as a party or as a country as seeing this is not the end but just as another beginning and seeing that giving up never achieves anything whether it's personally politically we have to keep going with gratefulness in our hearts because we have the opportunity to keep going until next time I'm Sam Logan that's my story and I'm sticking to it <laughs>